Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. The Human Experience is in session. My name is Xavier Katana. We've got an incredible program planned for you guys today. So sit back, have a drink, and enjoy this conversation. Our guest for today is Mr. Randall Carlson. Randall is a master builder and architectural designer. He has over 40 years of experience as a researcher of ancient mysteries and as a geological explorer. By way of Sacred Geometry International and the Cosmographic Research Institute, Randall investigates and documents the catastrophe-laden history of the world and also how earlier cultures were likely more advanced than previously thought in an attempt to unlock the mysteries of the true origins of us as a species Randall, wow, what a mouthful. Welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here, sir. Welcome to HXP. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been, try- been trying to get this conversation set up. I'm so glad that we were finally able to put it together. So why don't, why don't we kick this off with an introduction? Tell us, you know, for the people that don't know, tell us who you are, what you do, and how you got to doing what you do, please. Oh, well, Xavier, that's a, a, an interesting question. It's just something that I got interested in science, you know, as, at a very early age. I grew up in rural Minnesota where the effects of the Great Ice Age were everywhere about us. And so early on, I just got interested in uh, nature, the natural world. Um, I read a lot. So I was always reading things about uh, geology, geography, the weather, you know, um, mass extinctions. I was very, very interested in dinosaurs. Of course, as a lot of boys and kids in general were back in the 50s and 60s. So one thing kind of led to another, and it was just a a lifelong interest that uh, I've kept up for for many decades now. And uh, once I kind of uh, launched my business in the 80s and got to where I could actually afford to do some traveling, I have been traveling Oh, typically three or four times a year to uh, investigate various sites of interest to me. These could be geological sites. They could be archaeological sites or paleontological sites. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, in a very uh, abbreviated version of it, that's kind of how it, it, it all came to be. I majored in geology in college mm-hmm. um, with a minor in astronomy. So I had those two things kind of in my academic background. Although I've not been a practicing professional geologist, I've, it's been an avocation of mine now literally for about 35 years. So I don't take normal vacations, sightseeing vacations. I do, um, you might say, research trips. And I'll sure. usually go with um, several like-minded people who are interested in the same kind of things. And we'll go spend anywhere from one to two weeks, two and a half weeks, uh, exploring various sites that are interesting to me that I feel that are uh, important in trying to, um, you know, shed light on this shifting paradigm that we're in the middle of right now. Yeah. The, 
the realization that there's a whole lot more to our history than had been previously recognized. So that's uh, a big part of it. And now it's gotten to the point where I'm kind of, I, I've accumulated enough massive material and information that uh, it seems like the next logical thing to do is to to try to share this because I know there's a lot of people out there um, that are interested in the same kinds of things. And perhaps in some of these areas, I've got a bit of a head start so mm-hmm. I can save people some time. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, so I'm doing these podcasts, and this is our first one. So it's uh, yeah. it's great to be here. First of many, um, hopefully. Well, I mean, I I heard about you through Joe's show when you were on with uh, Graham, and Graham has been on the show a bunch of times as well. And um, you know, I, I there is something about these questions that sort of, I mean, for those that of us that are seekers, we're, we're looking for the answers to these questions. Who, who are we? Why are we here? Is mm-hmm. there a God? I mean, these are big questions. What are the origins of our species? Because it seems like the, the origin of how humans came to this current point is, is very concealed. It's very hidden from, you know, the purview of mainstream history. So, you know, I, I want to set the the stage as it were let's let's paint a picture for our audience and maybe maybe we can start with what is the current geological standing that historians have for the human species as it as it were now well of course geological science is in the midst of a major upheaval right now but for most of the 20th century, the dominant paradigm was one of uh, gradualism, a very strict gradualism. Uh, the, the term that has been used, it's a mouthful, it's uniformitarianism, which basically uh, extrapolates into the past by looking at things that are going on today. And it was always considered to be pseudoscientific to begin to try to look at forces or effects uh, that we can't see going on around us today. So it, the, the uniformitarian method is, is very powerful because obviously by making observations of processes that are currently underway mm-hmm. and then extrapolating into the past, we can learn a lot. Mm-hmm. However, when it becomes dogmatic, then it becomes very limited because it's apparent now that, yeah, there are things that have, have transpired in earth history that do not have a modern analog. Mm-hmm. And so what uniformitarian um, perspective gives us is the realization that, yes, there have been things that we can't explain in terms of modern processes. So, you know, this all began to shift back in 1980 was a major turning point when three separate teams all proposed that a major asteroid or comet impact had been responsible for the Cretaceous tertiary mass extinction that killed off the dinosaurs. And this kind of began to open the door for scientists to reconsider catastrophism in Earth history. Because prior to that, anybody who invoked anything that was, um, you know, unlike modern processes was considered to be a a fringe, you know, pseudoscience, all of that. So you had you know, it was called the Velikovsky effect back in the 1950s when Emanuel Velikovsky wrote a series of books about Earth's cataclysmic past. Mm-hmm. And he uh, he wrote several books uh, that were really have stood the test of time, the main one being uh, Earth in Upheaval, where he, you know, in the mid-1950s, there was a lot of anomalous 
information and data out there that did not fit into the uniformitarian paradigm. Hmm. And this came from multiple venues, such as hard geological science observations within um, nature, but it also came, and this was what he was open to, was uh, the traditions of mythology and legends and folklore that seemed to have this catastrophic um, implications to them. You know, stories about the great floods, about fires from space, um, great upheavals in nature. So what he did in the mid-50s was he collected all of this stuff together that was pretty much available at that time. Well, so far so good. But then what he did was he attempted to explain it and interpret it. And this is where he got attacked because he came up with a theory that, you know, there are people who follow um, Belikovsky today who will kind of religiously hold to his 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 theories of origin, but he came up with an astrophysics that that basically um, got savaged by the scientific community um, because, you know, he theorized that, that Mars and Venus were ejected from Jupiter and came very, very close to the Earth, and it was these close passages of Mars and Venus that triggered the catastrophes, the great floods, and he had uh, discussed a pole shift in there. And, and then, of course, the astronomers went crazy over that idea. Hmm. However, while in fact, they then wrote a book called Scientists Confront Velikovsky, um, where basically the whole book was a refutation of Velikovsky's astrophysics. However, what they didn't touch was his catastrophism research. That came through unscathed. Nobody even attempted to refute uh, some of the, the, the evidence for great catastrophes. Well, Fast forward um, about 20 years, and in the mid-70s, uh, Charles Hapgood came out with a, uh, a work called Path of the Pole, where he essentially kind of did a Velikovsky approach, and he collected together all of the evidence uh, that had accrued in the interim uh, that pointed to catastrophes in Earth history. And then his, his attempt to explain that was through pole shifts. And he theorized that perhaps uh, there were triggers that could cause the um, the crust of the earth to slip over the mantle, mm -hmm. and that this crustal slippage is what had, had triggered the catastrophes. And again, that got attacked. Um, in the end, Hapgood sort of pulled back on that idea. Uh, interestingly, he said, well, it definitely appears that great catastrophes have happened in earth history. I'm not sure if a pole shift was the cause of it. Um and that was, like I said, I think that was 76 or 77 when he came out with that, with Path of the Pole. Um, and then, of course, a few years later, you get the, the, the uh, extraterrestrial impact hypothesis of, of um, like I said, multiple scientific teams. Uh, Walter Alvarez was probably the most well-known. They were the ones who discovered the iridium layer at the KT or Cretaceous Tertiary boundary mm -hmm. over in Gubbio, Italy. Mm -hmm. And... Once they discovered that iridium, they knew that iridium was essentially a cosmic uh, material, that it, um, it was a, it's a siderophile, which means that it, it likes iron and it binds to iron. Mm -hmm. So it, the, the assumption was in the early days of the Earth, all the iridium that would have been at the surface of the Earth bound to iron, and then as the iron uh, subsided into towards the, the core of the Earth, it took all the iridium with it, which left the crust of the earth deficient in iridium. However, it's known from the study of meteorites uh, that they're very rich in iridium. 
So when they found this iridium layer right there at the, the what they call it, the, the, the magic boundary layer, which is only a few inches thick. And they knew that below that the dinosaurs had existed, but up that above that there were no more dinosaurs. It was like the end of the Mesozoic era, which was the great era of middle life. So they found this iridium layer, and they said, well, could this possibly be the result of some kind of a cosmic impact? So they began to contact colleagues around the world who subsequently began to look at other Cretaceous tertiary boundary outcrops. And at every one they looked at, they found this iridium layer. So from the amount of iridium that they could now estimate had been deposited worldwide, mm -hmm. knowing the percentage of iridium that would be in an asteroid, for example, they were able to calculate that, that it would require uh, an asteroid about six miles in diameter to uh, distribute this much iridium around the globe. And then from that, they were able to uh, determine that, well, if a six-mile asteroid hit the Earth, what size of a crater would it would it create? Mm -hmm. So they then extrapolated and 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 uh, estimated that a crater of maybe somewhere 100 to 150 miles in diameter. This is all in the early 80s. Okay. Then we get to the early 90s, and lo and behold, they discover the um, Chicxulub crater buried under the northern Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico, and it dates to exactly <laughs> the Cretaceous tertiary boundary. So there we go. Hmm. So uh, that pretty much shut up all the doubters and the skeptics who were trying to say, oh, no, it was a much longer process, a slow, um, you know, much more protracted, you know, an impact would be all of a sudden. Right. But you also had paleontologists taking a much closer look at the layers going right up to the boundary. And what they discovered was that, yeah, it does appear that, that the dinosaurs were prolific right up to the boundary, and then, boom, they were gone. So, wow. And I followed all that. You know, I, I followed all that, and, um, you know, it, it just it, it, it intensified my interest in catastrophes. What I got more interested in, though, was, was the Ice Ages. And because I grew up in a in a in a, uh, a landscape that had pretty much been sculpted by the great glaciers because right where we lived was near the margin of this what's called the Laurentide ice sheet this massive 5000 5 million square mile ice sheet hmm. that covered 3 quarters of Canada mm -hmm. um down till you know 12 11 12 13000 years ago mm -hmm. so right there where we lived was on the fluctuating margin of that ice sheet so what it did was it created all kinds of unique, interesting landscapes. And, uh, you know, I used to get this impression, even as a, as a small boy, that there was something there. There was something hiding in the landscape, some kind of story. Mm -hmm. And so only later when I grew up, you know, did I begin to understand that, <clears throat> yes, indeed, there, there's, a, there's a very profound story who's, that's being preserved in these landscapes. And so that's kind of how it went. I mean, I, as I think about it, I'm sure there'd be many other points along the way that I would say, yes, that was a seminal point where I um, really got interested in this sort of thing. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, the research you're doing, it, it's uncovering so much. I mean, there's so much information to pack in what you just said, but I'm sure you heard about this on Wednesday, uh, last week, I think it was, on, it, there was an asteroid that narrowly, quote, missed Earth overnight yeah. and these astro astronomers had no idea that it was right next to our earth so it seems that maybe these catastrophes are more common than we would generally think that they are 
that's one of the things I've been arguing now for years, Xavier. Interestingly, maybe by coincidence, several weeks before I was uh, I did an interview on Russia Today. Actually, it was it was around um, Asteroid Day, which is June 30th. And on there, I basically said, you know, we can expect these things are now coming by us about once a month. So, um, you know, and I made the point that a lot of times they're they're coming by us and we don't know that they're that they're right on us until boom, we see them flying by out there. Mm-hmm. That's, but, that's uh, a scary concept. Yes, yes. And, the, you know, this one was estimated to be as possibly as big as, <clears throat> excuse me, 400 feet in diameter. Now, you've probably heard of the Tunguska event of 1908 in Siberia. Have not. Okay, Tunguska 1908 Siberia, very, very important event for people to know about. Okay. This was a probably a piece of the comet Enki, which is a member of the Torrid meteor stream, came in, uh, flew into the atmosphere early on the morning of June 30th, 1908, near just north of Lake Baikal in Siberia. And it was a lower density object. So like I said, it was about 150 feet in diameter. Um, and what happens when a lower density object comes into the Earth's atmosphere, It the atmosphere tends to uh, pile up in front of it, if you will, and create so much pressure that the object will actually explode before it hits the ground. So this is exactly what happened with this Tunguska uh, event of 1908. It exploded. The estimate is up about five miles in the atmosphere. And the blast wave radiated out and it flattened. Where where it uh, exploded was over old growth taiga forest. So we're talking about Forests of trees that are two and three feet in diameter, about 820 or 30 miles, square miles of that old growth taiga forest was completely flattened. Mm. Um, and, and when you look at the, uh, the aerial diagrams of it, what happened is that there was the epicenter of the blast, the shock wave came down and was so hot, about 200 miles directly below the epicenter got incinerated to almost nothing. Then as you go outside of that, the trees are um, broken off and splayed over um, in a radiating pattern from the epicenter. So by studying the pattern of tree destruction, uh, the the geologists were able to, and astronomers and other scientists who were looking at this, were able to to calculate the intensity of the blast wave, how much pressure it was. The pressure wave from that blast actually encompassed the planet twice. And barographs, which um, are atmospheric pressure devices, had just been installed like a couple of years before in England. So they were able to, and unbeknownst to them, see, that's the thing, when this event happened, nobody really knew. But in England, the... uh, they were monitoring these barographs and they saw that a pressure wave passed over England and nobody knew what it was. And then 11 hours later, a second one passed over England. They still didn't know what it was, but they made you know notes and records of this. And it was only like 20 some years later after Russian scientists got to the site of the Tunguska blast that they were able to put two and two together and realize, well, that pressure wave passed over England something like an hour after mm-hmm. the blast in Siberia. Mm-hmm. A couple of, maybe it was a couple of hours. So then they realized, and from that, they were then able to conclude or derive 
considerably more information about the nature of the blast. Now, that the, the, the intensity or, or energy released during that atmospheric blast has been estimated to be around the equivalent of a 15 megaton hydrogen bomb explosion. Wow. Now, uh, a 15 megaton hydrogen bomb is uh, about the size, that is the size of the largest nuclear warheads in the American arsenal back in the 60s and 70s during the peak of the Cold War. And basically, a 15 megaton bomb could wipe out any sizable metropolitan area on Earth. Um, because they were, they were uh, a bomb of that size was known as a, as a city buster mm-hmm. because basically you drop it on any major city. You know, I'm near Atlanta, but it could be Washington, D.C. It could be L.A., mm-hmm. could be Chicago. doesn't matter. You've pretty much destroyed the whole city. For sure, yeah. And, and the, the object that, that came uh, by the earth last week was estimated to have been possibly up to 427 feet in diameter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> because assuming it is that it's a roughly, very roughly circular object, volume scales as the cube of the radius. So what that means is that you you, you look at an object to, to get its volume, like with Tunguska, you would go um, the radius, which say is 75 feet, that cubed, then that times... Uh, basically four thirds. So the formula is four thirds are to the third power. Um, and then that gives you the volume. So if you take the volume of this object using that formula, it's about 18 times larger actually than the Tunguska. So you can think of it essentially as being in the ballpark of 18 times more powerful than the Tunguska mm-hmm. blast. Mm-hmm. If that thing had struck the earth. Wow. Now a blast of that power that's not only a city buster that could take that could pretty much like wipe out an entire state. What 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 state are you in Xavier? Where are you located? I'm in like I'm on the East Coast. Okay, well, yeah. So, um I mean, it's gone. I mean, wherever I am, it's it's gone if something like that happens, for sure. Yes. The think of the state of Virginia. Something the size of the state of Virginia, you would pretty much have total devastation. And it would be even worse if the object fragmented into multiple pieces. Um and and again, w- one of the things that happens is that you know when 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 they uh, dropped the bomb on here bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki back in 1945, you know most people think of a, they imagine a bomb falling and then it hits the ground and it explodes. Well, that's not how this was done. This thing was detonated. Those those atomic bombs were detonated in the atmosphere because what happens is if it hits the ground, then the ground absorbs a lot of the of the energy. They wanted to release as much energy into the atmosphere as possible because that increases the radius of destruction, see? So an object that, that let's say the size of the, of the asteroid last week, mm-hmm. if it comes by and it fragments as it's coming into the atmosphere, it would actually turn into more like a shotgun blast. Right. You see, right. you might have, you could have half a dozen or 10 or 20 pieces of that coming in and that would spread out as it's as it's penetrating the atmosphere and really create a tremendous amount of of surface destruction hmm. i mean it, and when we look at you know how many times this has happened in in the history of civilization i mean how many times do you think that this has happened this has occurred on earth i mean ha, it, it seems like i mean this happens over and over but does 
in in your research, do you get to a point where you see humans build up to a certain point in technological advancement and then there's a cataclysm followed by a flood or is there a pattern that we can look at? Well, yeah, it seems, of course, one of the things that's coming from these studies is that, yeah, these kinds of cosmic encounters happen with much greater frequency than anybody was imagining even a few decades ago. Um, and you see, here's the thing about Xavier to think about with, with Tunguska, there was no crater, you know, cratering. Like, I don't know if you know meteor crater, the famous crater, uh, in Arizona. Heard of it. That's okay. There's, there's, um, there's a crater in, in Arizona near, near Winslow and it's about a kilometer wide and 600 feet deep. And it was, it was caused by the impact into the ground of an iron asteroid. Now, it was estimated to be roughly in the ballpark of the same size as the Tunguska event. Here's the difference, though. Tunguska event is a much lower density object. It, in, in was, you know, it was almost certainly uh, a piece of a comet. So therefore, its density is not going to be, um, you know, the de- density is, is based upon the density of water, which is one gram per cubic centimeter, right? If you go out and you, you pick up an average rock next to a, a creek or river, that's going to be around three grams per cubic centimeter. A piece of cast iron is going to be about double that, see? Hmm. Now, when an object, let's picture an object 100, 150 feet in diameter. If it's low density like Tunguska, it will f- explode in the atmosphere, but if it's a higher density, if it's more like an iron asteroid, which would be, you can imagine, uh, imagine this, the, the, the objects that the Earth might encounter run the gamut from, on one end, you might have an object that's no more dense than a snowball. On the other end, you might have an object that's the same density as a piece of cast iron. And then you've got everything in between. There's a whole continuum. And snowball, cast iron, those are kind of uh, in, in oversimplified terms, those are the endpoints of that continuum. So the object in Arizona was primarily iron, an iron-based meteorite, and this is known because you can find pieces of the of the meteorite uh, that are distributed all around the the impact crater. Mm-hmm. So that's the difference. If you have a an iron object or a higher density object, it will tend to penetrate the atmosphere, strike the Earth, and leave an impact crater. Eventually, the impact crater will get obscured by erosion and sedimentary infield and things like that. And then it becomes what's called an astrobleem, which means star wound. Hmm. And it's maybe not necessarily a big obvious hole in the ground. If you pull up pictures, Xavier, of Meteor Crater, Arizona, you'll see pictures. And it's a big, obvious, bowl-shaped hole in the ground. Okay. Okay. If you're following this so far, here's the significance. The lower density objects like Tunguska are five to 10 times more prevalent than the higher density objects that leave observable impact scars in the earth. Mm -hmm. So the significance of that is, is when we start crater counting, that will not necessarily Mm. give us an accurate assessment of how many times we're encountering things from space. Because... The estimates are that the that the meteor crater in Arizona happened somewhere from twenty five to fifty thousand years ago. So let's say it, it happened, you know, thirty or forty thousand years ago. The hole is still there, right? With Tunguska, what you had was you had forest blowdown, and 
within another century or two, there won't be really any obvious evidence that this tremendously destructive uh, thing happened there, see? Now, when you consider that the Tunguska-type encounters might be as much as 10 times more frequent than a meteor crater-type encounter, now you begin to realize, well, yes, so we're, we're realizing that these kinds of encounters could be way more abundant than anybody had imagined. And, and again, um, you know, uh, and one, one of the, I'll say this, one of the other things that, that has um, emerging from, from modern research about the structure of meteor showers and so on, and which are all generated from the disintegration of comets, um, is that there could perhaps be clustered impacts, periods of, of higher, uh, higher than normal um, encounters between Earth and this cosmic debris. Mm-hmm. And that's a very interesting idea. So there may be periods of clustered bombardment. In fact, hmm. going back to the KT boundary of 66 million years ago when the dinosaurs disappeared, it now appears that there was maybe a half a dozen impacts clustered around that boundary. And one of the reasons that some of the early critics said, well, there's evidence that the dinosaurs were already on the way out before the big impact. Well, that was probably true, but there were three or four smaller impacts leading up to the big one. And then there were several more after the big one. So what you had was a period of clustered bombardment. And by the time it was all over, yeah, the entire biosphere had been completely remodeled and dinosaurs were no longer part of it. Absolutely incredible. Wow. Just to hear, hear you speak about all of this. I mean, it, it's, it's amazing to me just to think at how frequent this is and not as a matter of, you know, if, but more of a, of a matter of when this is going to occur. I mean, it, and you know, it makes me, it makes me wonder, you know, what, what is the solution for something like this? I mean, it, let's say that, I mean, would, would an early warning system even be something that, uh, I don't know, mainstream, the powers that be would release to us because it would just create a panic around Earth, right? If this was, if there was an asteroid coming at us, I mean, most likely you're going to want to be subdued. You're not, you're not going to want to know about this. I mean, at least that's, that's what they're going to think, right? So, I mean, is there any viable solution to this event that seems to be happening quite often? Yes. Well, step number one, which has been advocated for a couple of decades now by, you know, the astronomers and, and scientists that have been following this is that we need to begin um, counting. We, we need a census of the things that are in space because and, and that have the potential to become Earth crossers. Uh, because, because you have to understand that you've got two types of trajectories out there that could potentially um, involve impacts with Earth. One is you've got a hyperbolic orbit, the geometry of the orbit's hyperbolic. A hyperbolic geometry is open-ended. So if an object comes in and it's it's determined to be on a hyperbolic orbit, what that means is it's going to come in, make a passage around the sun, and then it's going to head back out into space and it's never coming back again. But then you've got elliptical orbits, and they're usually, you can almost think of like a ping-pong game between the sun and Jupiter. You can have these long-term orbits that are hyperbolic. If they come close enough to planets, the gravitational effects of the planets, and per, especially Jupiter, because that's that's the big boy of the of the of the bunch, mm-hmm. their the geometry of their orbit can be altered 
And what is an open-ended hyperbola can become a closed uh, ellipse. Now, once it becomes a closed ellipse, it's going to stay in this cosmic ping pong game between Jupiter and the sun back and forth. Okay. Now that comet is going to then begin to undergo a, a process. Um, because when a comet is in deep space out way out there, um, it is going to be essentially in deep freeze, right? There's going to be something that occurs probably on the stellar or galactic level that upsets the reservoirs of comets that exist out beyond the orbit of Neptune and there are these hypothetical reservoirs. One is called the Kuiper disk, and the other one's called the Oort cloud. And they contain potentially billions of comets. Hmm. Now, if you have an event that, that occurs on the galactic level, and this is all still theoretical, but something apparently will cause the dislodging of comets from this very delicate orbit that they're in way out there, and it can send them this cascading event into the inner solar system. And mm -hmm. it turns out that the planets, the outer planets happen to be spaced just exactly what they would need to be in order to basically draw these comets in. Um, uh, Neptune, for example, if, if Neptune captures a comet, Neptune can then hand that comet off to Uranus. Uranus can hand that off to Jupiter then Jupiter, which is like the big boy of the system, will do one of two things. It will gravitationally accelerate that comet, which means it then heads back out into space, or it will decelerate the comet, which means it begins to drop in towards the sun. At that point, it can become an Earth crosser, meaning that it, its orbit can intersect the orbit of the Earth. Now, once that object comes into that orbit between Jupiter and Earth, it will begin to, it will become active because comets are loaded with volatiles, for example. So once they begin to heat up and once they come into the gravitational force fields of the inner planets and the sun, they will become active and they, they will start outgassing and then they will start uh, actually disintegrating. And one comet nucleus can become multiple nuclei. We saw this actually happen back in uh, 1994 when comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 uh, made a very close pass by Jupiter, and a single comet nucleus was ripped into 21 separate pieces. And so what you now had was a single large comet nucleus gave birth to 21 smaller nuclei. Once the, the astronomers were able to track the, the geometric shape and the velocity of those pieces, they're able to now predict where it's going to be and when, and that's when they realized that... Uh, 12 months later, it was going to impact Jupiter, and sure enough, it did. In, in the summer of 1994, you had 21 impacts into, into the Jovian atmosphere. And so what we learned from that was a number of things, is that, that, that it's very typical for a one comet nucleus, once it comes into the inner solar system and becomes active, it can begin to undergo a hierarchy of disintegrations. So what that then means is that now its orbit, its orbital path begins, becomes littered with that debris of the disintegrating comet. Mm -hmm. And each year, uh, when we have meteor streams, like we just experienced the, the Orionids, right? So when you have meteor streams, whether it's the Leonids or the Taurids or the Draconids or the Perseids, each of these meteor streams is associated with a disintegrating comet. Now, the idea is that when the comet initially begins to disintegrate, 
there will be areas within its within its uh, orbital pathway, if you want, where this material, this byproduct of its of its disintegration, is going to be more densely clustered, and in other places where it might be uh, much less frequent, much more sparse, if you follow what I'm saying. So, if those orbits intersect the Earth's orbit, then the 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 critical issue is. Is the Earth passing through that orbit when the density of material is relatively low, meaning the probabilities of an impact on Earth are relatively low? Mm-hmm. Or is the Earth passing through the stream uh, at a point where the material in the stream is much more dense? It, it, imagine this, is Xavier. You're, you're driving along. This is the analogy I use. You're driving along a country road, and you're, there's nobody else on the road except you. So you can kick back. You know, you can listen to tunes. You, you know, you can you know, look at your iPhone or whatever, but now you're coming up to an intersection, right? Now that intersection is a major highway. Hmm. Now, when you're crossing that intersection, that's when you've got to be careful because now suddenly the potential for a catastrophe is increasing. And the other factor is, is that, you know, if it's a major roadway, you know, like any roadways around uh, any urban area in, in, in the U.S., you know that if you're out there driving at 5 or 6 p.m., there's going to be a whole lot more uh, traffic than if you're driving at, at 5 a.m. or 4 a.m. or 3 a.m. in the morning, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the same analogy holds. It depends on you're not only crossing the stream or crossing the highway. It's also how much traffic is there at the time you're crossing. Mm-hmm. So we cross the, the Torrid Meteor Stream twice each year, right? Most of the time we pass through it, and what we get is a is a fairly impressive meteor shower, meaning that the, the material that we're encountering is just small. It might be the size of a fingernail up to a few feet in diameter. If you've got a, an object that's a few feet in diameter coming into the atmosphere, it creates a magnificent fireball. <clears throat> but so, <clears throat> excuse me, so the, the idea here is that the Tunguska object was June 30th, which is the peak of the summertime torrids. It, it also came from the direction of the sun. Mm-hmm. Well, because the torrid meteor stream picture, it's going out, not quite to Jupiter. It turns around and it comes back. And as it's coming down towards the sun, it's accelerating in its velocity. It sort of slingshots around the sun in what's called its perihelion passage. It comes back from around the sun and then begins to head back out towards Jupiter. So when we cross the stream in midsummer, around June 30th, if you're looking up the stream from the direction that these meteors are coming from, you're looking towards the sun. So they tend to be invisible. And, and what happened was on, on uh, early uh, morning of June 30th, you know, people didn't see this thing till the last minute. It was already in the atmosphere, coming through the atmosphere when people began to see it. Now, the other peak when we're crossing the stream the second time is centered right around Halloween. In fact, they, the torrids have been sometimes referred to as the Halloween meteors. Now, at this point, we're crossing the stream, but the stream is coming from the direction of Jupiter. So you're looking out into space away from the sun. Mm-hmm. So now you can actually see the meteor stream. You can see the meteors coming in. Um, so, but but again, the whole point I'm trying to make, see, is that the Tatarid meteor stream probably originated from a giant comet that came into the solar system between 25 and 30,000 years ago, began to undergo this hierarchy of disintegrations, 
littered near Earth space with the byproducts of its of its uh, disintegration. And Earth has from time to time encountered this stuff. And the last time it happened on a major uh, scale was 1908. Although right after seismometers were placed on the moon during the Apollo program, uh, I think it was they were still operating. I think it was 1976. On June 29th or 30th, there was a clustered bombardment on the moon hmm. that was almost certainly um, tarred meteor stream uh, in, in origin. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been a number of other interesting encounters that were likely torrid meteor stream related. So that's a little bit how it works. It's, you know, it, it's, it's a complex system. Um, and it's not, you know, a lot of the critics early on were imagining that, well, if you had a mass extinction event that was caused by an impact, mm-hmm. that should have just been one event clean. It's done. It's over with. Right. Because what they're imagining is a a single impact that and they're and they're also doing crater counting. So right there, if you're only relying on crater counting, you're not going to get an accurate determination of how many times Earth encounters cosmic debris. Yeah. Right. So what they were doing was they were crater counting and saying, well, based on this, we know that, you know, major impacts that we need to worry about only happen, say, every million years. Right. Well, this this is really what has done is created a false sense of security because that's not the case at all. And, and, and the big impacts like the, the dinosaur impact. Yes. That these things are very infrequent, but you know, a dinosaur scale impact is basically going to wipe out civilization completely, uh, probably cause the extinction of the human species. Because if you look at what's now known about, um, that KT impact, I mean, it was pretty, pretty wild stuff. I mean, you had global firestorms, you had, um, you know, you had acid rain with a pH of one that, you know, on large parts of the planet. Now, pH of one, that's battery acid, you know, Hmm. try to imagine a global rainstorm of battery acid, you know, how, how did anything survive? Um, you know, seismologists have looked at it and said, well, with an impact of that intensity, you probably had failure of every fault line on earth. You Hmm. also had uh, gigantic volcanism going on. The Deccan traps of India seem to coincide with the impact. They may have actually been triggered by the uh, force of the impact. That in turn then began to eject billions of tons of sulfuric aerosols into the um, into the atmosphere, which then would have added to the chaos of mm-hmm. of that time. So, but the thing is. My point is, an event like that is not really the thing that we need to be concerned about, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. What we need to be concerned about is the smaller stuff that could for, for perhaps take out the East Coast of the United States, mm-hmm. not cause a mass extinction of the human species, but could cause economic destruction that would take literally decades to recover from. Yeah, I mean, the the system as it is seems to be built on toothpicks. I mean, you, you move one toothpick around even a little bit, and suddenly you find, you know, this, this havoc. Of, I mean, just for an example, um, I... I was I was traveling uh, a couple weekends ago and was driving up on the highway and there was an accident reported a little bit north and there was traffic backed up for miles and miles and miles and miles. So, I mean, if if there if there's an event that maybe isn't as big as something that 
that caused the dinosaurs to to be extinct, but small enough that it could take out something like a major city, then I mean it's it's definitely something that we need to be aware of and conscious of. I mean, uh, it, it it seems like it seems like uh, that that mainstream media has sort of prepared us in a way for these types of events. I mean, there's there's a lot of apocalyptic type thematic movies that are coming out in the mainstream. Do you think that there's any correlation or connection? Do you think that humans just have some sort of fascination with this this type of thing, this type of theme, or is it something more? Well, I think that, you know, we carry this imprint. You know, our ancestors suffered through huge catastrophes, you know, the, the, not the Cretaceous tertiary, but the younger driest catastrophe of 12,800 to 13,000 years ago was a major global event. And it did cause a mass extinction, a mass extinction of, uh, about half of the great megafaunal species of earth. Um, it caused the sudden extinction of the Clovis culture, uh, that was very prevalent in North America. So we do have in our immediate past a global event that was not as severe as the Cretaceous tertiary boundary, but in its own way was probably when you go back and you begin to look at the evidence for catastrophic events in Earth history, it's pretty safe to say that the younger driest boundary catastrophe may have been the most severe event in somewhere between three and five million years. <clears throat> and so really our, our modern history emerges out of that event. You know, we, the human population, I, I think the evidence is now pretty overwhelming that the human population, uh, took a major hit. Um, you know, when you, when you start thinking about the, the amazing megafauna that was living throughout the, the, the ice ages, um, you know, the, the mastodons and the, the, four species of mammoths and the giant ground sloths and the cave bears and the huge camels. And I mean, you've got a list of about 120 of these amazing mega mammals that, that roamed the earth. And right around the time of the younger driest boundary, they went extinct. And, you know, there've been various theories as to what caused this extinction. And the dominant one really since the fifties and sixties has been that human hunting was to blame human predation, but for many, many reasons, and we could do a whole, um, conversation just on this for, for many reasons, that idea is now untenable. Um, because the extinction happened too fast. The, the, the estimates for the number of people on the earth, uh, during the latter stages of the, of the ice age, let's say 14 to 15 to 16,000 years ago was less than the number of, of woolly mammoths. Hmm. So, you know, then you, from that, you're going to surmise that paleo Indian hunters on foot using spears were able to exterminate somewhere around 10 million hmm. woolly mammoths worldwide so quick hmm. that they weren't able to reproduce the species. Uh, you know, it, the idea just really becomes almost laughable when it you is. think about it, but, yeah. but that was the dominant idea. And, you know, that idea has now been challenged. It's been challenged all the way along, but, but it seemed to fit the narrative because the idea now is man is destroying nature on earth and anything that can now be invoked to support the contention that, that humans are bad for the planet 
is given a lot of press. And so, you know, this is not to say that we, we, you know, don't have a, have a, a bad imprint in a lot of ways we do, but in some ways, you know, we may actually end up being the salvation for the planet because the human species are the one species out of all of the species on earth now that can anticipate the next impact. Hmm. And what we realize now is that impacts like you even said earlier, much more frequent than anybody had even imagined. Hmm. And, you know, there are five great mass extinctions in earth history. The, the, the terminal Ordovician, the late Devonian, um, the Jurassic Triassic, the Cretaceous tertiary, um, all of these extinction events are associated with either gigantic volcanism or impacts. And so, <clears throat> and there may be a connection between uh, these large scale volcanic events and impacts. Uh, there may be a connection between collapses and reversals of the geomagnetic field and cosmic impacts. Mm -hmm. And there mm -hmm. certainly is a direct connection between uh extinction of species and cosmic impacts where to me, this thing now gets really interesting is now when we start talking about the extinction of human civilizations mm -hmm. in the past, mm -hmm. because we may be looking at the same mechanism. There will be times when nature just convulses. And I think that the, that the most evidence is now pointing for a cosmic trigger behind these convulsions of, of terrestrial nature that have led to mass extinctions and complete complete reorganizations of the biosphere. Mm. I mean, you got to think about this as Xavier, you know, up until about 13,000 years ago, half over half of North America had a climate like the South pole. And you had, uh, these massive ice sheets. You had the Laurentide ice sheet that was sent out over Hudson Bay. It may have been as much as two miles thick. Then you had the Cordilleran ice sheet that covered all of the Canadian Rockies and up into Alaska. And <clears throat> between those two, you had, somewhere between six and seven million square miles of the Earth's surface buried under ice, right? When all of that ice accumulated, what that meant was that ocean levels had to go down correspondingly. In other words, you've now taken six or seven million cubic miles of water out of the ocean basins, frozen it as glacial ice, and accumulated on the continents, right? Mm -hmm. So now when ocean levels go down 400 feet, you're exposing most of the continental shelves that rim every continent on Earth, right? So now, during the Ice Age, you've got this whole ecosystem that emerges on these continental shelves, right? And if you had humans during that time, the most benign place to live, the best, the, the most favorable real estate would have been uh, coastlines of the Earth because the oceans would have helped to moderate the, the severe cold of the, of the Ice Age. And so if you had human cultures evolving during the Ice Age, just like when you look at the, the, the origin of modern human culture into, into this you know, global uh, culture that we've got now, it starts with port cities. And then those port cities become places of, of trade, and they become part of a, a network of, of economic exchange. And just as we see civilization forming on coastlines in the last three to 500 years, it would have been natural for villages and communities of people, even if there were cities, for them to form on the coastlines. Well, those coastlines now, Xavier, are 400 feet under ocean water. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> you know, that's part of the reason why I say it's premature to close the book and say, well, we know that 
13, 14, 15,000 years ago, the only thing people were doing was leading a hunter-gatherer existence. Right. And they never got beyond that until the Industrial Revolution or whatever. See, because once you begin to understand how, how extremely this planet has been remodeled over and over again, you realize, well, whatever existed here before, we shouldn't be surprised that we're not finding much right. evidence of something, you know. Yeah. Um, so the thing we got to do is, I think, is first of all, is to begin to um, um, counting these, try to locate. I mean, the estimates are now that we maybe know 10% of the potential Earth impactors out there. So the key to surviving an event like that is how much lead time do we have? Hmm. You know, what we learned from this event last week was zero lead time. Right. Now, if that thing had, had come into the atmosphere, we'd be picking up the pieces for, for years to come. Um, and we would have, and if it had happened over a, a, a populated area, there could have potentially been millions of casualties. The economic consequences of that would have, like I said, would have been felt for yeah. years. Um, and, and see that thing, Xavier is just a small object. You know, if an object a thousand feet in diameter, now you're looking at something, you know, a hundred times Tunguska. Wow. And, and that would, that an object of that size could take out the entire East coast. If it hit the oceans, it would generate huge tsunamis that making landfall might've been two to 300 feet high. You know, there'd been, been an order of magnitude beyond the the, 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 the big uh, tsunamis that we saw hit Japan and Indonesia in the last uh, couple of decades. So the, the consequences of it would be severe. It wouldn't cause a mass extinction like the KT, but it would cause economic repercussions and huge uh, mortality events. It, locally, it could cause mass extinctions. So what we need to be doing is we need, to, we need a census of these things. And this is why I'm a, a firm believer that um, we need to move forward uh, with a with a vigorous space program, because right now basically we're sitting ducks. Mm -hmm. And and if we have a vigorous space program, um, you know we're in a position to to react to it, to respond to it. And and you know really if we if we detect a, a, an Earth impactor early enough, <clears throat> really all you got to do is nudge the darn thing, you know, and, and then a direct impact can become a wide miss just with a nudge. See. Um, so, you know, there's any number of, of proposals, uh, on the drawing boards for asteroid impact mitigation. Randall, a let comment me, would be, yeah, go ahead. Let me, let me bump in for a second here. You know, I, I'm curious about all of this, you know, because if, if you're anything like me, you know, there's your, your senses are, are kind of in tune to this, this vibration or frequency or whatever is going on here. I'm not exactly sure how to define it, but it feels like my antenna is up for these events when, when they're happening, when they're coming, worldwide events. Um, you could see the work of Dr. Roger Nelson, uh, the Global Consciousness Project. It seems like humans are linked into a global network of consciousness where they're, they're communicating in some way about... You know, what's going to happen? So, you know, today I was reading um, something that was trending on Twitter today that the Greenland ice sheet braces for record single day meltdown after Europe heat wave moves north. I mean, there's it, there, there seems to be such drastic climate change that we're encountering this 
freak weather. I mean, it's record-breaking weather. I mean, would you... You've written on the effects of um, CO2, and you've talked about how carbon is there is there's a demonization of that. Uh, you know, what do you think is happening when we're looking at these these extreme weather phenomena? Well, I, I'm kind of glad you brought that up because you know I, I've been studying weather and extreme weather for years and years. It's part of the thing that I look at, um, and you know I've cataloged. Um, these extraordinary events that have, have occurred over and over and over again on any time scale you can look at. And, you know, again, this would be something that would be probably the subject of a, of a whole discussion in itself. Mm. But compared to some of the things that we've looked at in the recent past, I, I personally, I don't think we see anything that's that unprecedented now. Um, if you want to talk about droughts, yeah, we've had droughts that are way, way more severe than anything we've seen in the last 50 years. Um, if you want to talk about floods, yeah, we've had these enormous floods that have, you know, wiped out entire watersheds. Um, we've, you know, forest fires, you know, one of the things that I've studied and written considerably about is some of the great forest fires of the 19th century. And these forest fires were just phenomenal. <clears throat> they were just on a scale that makes them almost unbelievable. Um, you know, there was uh, the Peshtigo fire of um, 1871. Um, it, it, one of the interesting coincidences, um, bizarre coincidences, if you will, probably everybody's heard of the great Chicago fire, right? Mrs. O'Leary's mm -hmm. cow kicking over the lantern. You ever heard of that? Sure, yeah. Sure, the, the great Chicago fire. Well, if you, as I have done, I've gone through the literature and read over and over the, the, the uh, eyewitness accounts and the 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 write-ups about the Chicago fire. And it basically started at nine o'clock on Sunday evening, October 8th, 1871. And Chicago fire to this day is still the, um, the most devastating urban fire in American history. Hmm. The most devastating forest fire in terms of sheer mortality was the Peshtigo, Wisconsin fire. And here's what's interesting. You read the accounts about that, the eyewitness accounts and, and so forth, they're able to pinpoint um, the inception of that fire. And guess what? Nine, nine o'clock p.m. Sunday, October 8th, 1871. In other words, the, the most devastating urban fire and the most devastating um, forest fire in American history started simultaneously, right? In both cases, what you see is that um, – in terms of Peshtigo, people described how the fire came out of the sky and it lit the treetops on fire first. Just like in Chicago, they're describing how the fire is coming out of the sky and sets the tops of buildings and church steeples and things like that on fire first. Now, the Peshtigo fire basically was like a cyclone of fire that wiped out thousands of square miles within a day. Within a day. Then there was the Hinkley Fire of 1883. Same thing. It was a cyclonic firestorm that consumed a swath of, of forest that was about 20 to 30 miles wide and 50 miles long. And it did this literally in a matter of a few hours. And the flame column was so high that it could be seen from Duluth, which is a city up on the shore of Lake Superior. Well, the distance between Hinkley, Minnesota and Duluth is far enough that if you were able to see the flame column, 
it means that the, that the flame column had to be at least five miles high. So I could go through this whole litany of, of hurricanes, of tornado spells, forest fires, floods, and by the droughts. And by the end of this, you'd go, oh, my God, this stuff is what we're experiencing in the last decade or two really isn't worse than, than that. And as far as the global warming, you know, when you look at, at carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide is very, very critically important as a greenhouse gas in the first 50 to 100 parts per million. But its thermal captureability drops off very rapidly after about 100 parts per million. So that the, the, the curve that it actually describes in terms of thermal capture is a logarithmic curve. So that means it's, it's diminishing almost like in a reverse exponential curve. So each incremental increase in carbon dioxide is doing less and less in terms of capturing long-wave solar radiation emanating from the Earth. And the way that computer models are structured in order to ramp up the effects of carbon dioxide is to introduce positive feed, feedback amplification primarily through water vapor. And so the idea is that you're going to get this runaway positive feedback amplification because the even though the carbon dioxide is acknowledged to not really have much additional thermal capture, it has enough that it increases the water vapor. And water vapor, of course, is the primary greenhouse gas. That it, it far and away over-dominates carbon dioxide. But then that uptick in, in um in water vapor now then causes this feedback that causes more emission of carbon dioxide, presumably from the soil, from from the oceans, from peat bogs, and so on, then that causes more water vapor to go into the atmosphere, which causes more outgassing of carbon dioxide. But the the point is, is that um, without those positive feedback amplifications, the thermal capturability of carbon dioxide is, by the time it hits 400 parts per million, is pretty much exhausted. Because it only deals... It's only interested, carbon dioxide is only interested in that wavelength of, say, about 14 to 16 micrometers, micrometers or microns, right? Mm -hmm. And that is pretty much, that little window is pretty much already saturated. So it's just like if you had a sponge and you put it on the table and it's a dry sponge and you start pouring water on it, that sponge is going to suck up the water, suck up the water. It's going to keep doing it until, the until it gets saturated. At the point it gets saturated, you add more water, but the water is now going to just run out of the sponge. It's going to leak, right? So in a sense, that's what's happening. Once that 14 to 16 micron window, wavelength micron window gets saturated, now it's just leaking out into space. So... Um, I think from my own studies, I think the sun is a much bigger factor. Mm -hmm. And we, again, we could do a whole discussion about the sun and what we now know about the sun. And it's, it's a much more dynamic, you see, for most of the 20th century, the, the, the assumption was of the solar constant and the idea that the, the radiant output of the sun didn't vary enough to even bother with. And so when the IPCC was launched in the early nineties, all the computer modelers ignored the role of the sun because they were still um, believing this this model of the so-called solar constant. And therefore, because the sun is invariable, we do not need to even bother with it in our in our models. But as it turns out, every tons of research since then 
have shown that, oh, no, the sun is actually considerably more dynamic and variable than was being assumed 30 or 40 years ago. So and, let me, I'm so sorry, yeah. Randall. Let me just Go bump ahead. you really quick. We've got our first ch- super chat. Thank you so much for $2. Never so clever as this. If you'd like a question to, uh, for Randall, please do send us super chats to help us keep this going here. But he never so clever as this asks for you, Randall, are preventative forest fires a realistic task? Burning off the underbrush, yes, I would say it is. And I think the Native Americans understood that. And that's why they deliberately set forest fires. Because what has happened is um, because of our environmental policies over the last 30 or 40 years, it's it's allowed the accumulation of a huge fuel load on the forest floors. And these fuel catastrophic fires, you know, and, and California has had one of the most draconian hands-off policies. Um, you know, there are going to be, <clears throat> there's going to be natural mortality of forests that, that have nothing to do with, with human activity. Mm. Um, so at some point, you know, trees do die. And, you know, back 50 years ago, you had um, the Forest Service uh, stratagem was to, create fire breaks. You know, they had roads that they would maintain that the, that firefighting equipment could get into. Well, a lot of those roads have been closed down. I mean, I, I travel through the Western states all the time and I can, I can testify that roads that were accessible even in the nineties are now gated. You can't get in and the, and the roads are basically growing back. There's now trees and stuff. Even if they opened the gates, you couldn't drive on them now because you've got saplings and things that are, you know, 10 and 20 and 30 feet high growing where it used to be roads. Well, when you have a forest fire, you want to get the forest fire uh, fighting equipment in there. But you see, that, the, the, that's been um, compromised by the hands-off policy. And, you know, Native Americans didn't have a hands-off policy. They regularly, this is well known now, they regularly set forest fires because what they would do is they would be non-catastrophic. They would basically burn off the the, the dead debris and the fuel load that was accumulating on the forest floor and the large trees would come through unscathed. But now we've got these crown fires because there's so much fuel load. I mean, there are millions and millions of dead trees in, in, um, in California forests right now. And they've finally begun to change their policy a little bit and say, well, yeah, we can go and we can begin to harvest some of that dead timber. Mm-hmm. Well, they're forced to because that dead timber is what leads to these catastrophic fires. Mm-hmm. But even even the catastrophic fires in California um, last year, year before, mm-hmm. um, when you look at some of the 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 fires we were talking about, the Peshtigo fire, the Hinkley fire, or the 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 the, the big burn of 1910 in in Idaho, or the New Brunswick fires um, that happened in the early part of the 19th century. These are firestorms that are in a category all by themselves, and they are so extreme that, that they're almost impossible to comprehend. You know, I mean, think about that. You know, if you had a, the five-mile flame column for the Hinkley Fire of 1883, what does that mean? I mean, you're talking about trees that are 100 and 150 feet high, mm-hmm. right? How the hell do you get a five-mile flame column out of that? So <laughs> there's there's something else going on there that we haven't figured out yet, and I've got some theories on that, and I've written on it, and there's a couple of uh, videos up online where I am talking about that in in more detail, these catastrophic fires. But I guess the point is, when you immerse yourself in the study of global change, you realize that, yeah, there have been 
freakish things going on all along. And you can't go, you know, think about this, Xavier, the big witch pogroms of the 1600s, 15 and 1600s. Most of those tens of thousands of, of wise women that were, were in a lot of cases burned at the stake or hung or, 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 um, you know, um, kicked out of the, 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 in most cases they were actually, they were killed, but, um, they were basically, if you look what you see happening, every time you've got one of these, um, increases in, in the frequency of, of, uh, witch pogroms, it's after freakish weather because they're getting blamed for, you know, there'll be some, uh, extraordinarily cold summer. So the crops die in the field and people get hungry. So they're looking for a scapegoat. So what they now do is they burn a thousand witches at the stake and that they, in their minds, they now believe that they've, uh, addressed the problem. I, I kind of look at carbon dioxide as being like our, our modern witch. We want to blame everything on carbon dioxide when in fact, I think that the, the really, the, the big factor affecting the warming of the last century is the sun. Cause you got to keep in mind Xavier that, that, you know, we came out of three to 400 years of a period called the little ice age. Now the little ice age is considered to have been one of the coldest episodes of the entire Holocene. Hmm. The Holocene is 11,600 years old. We're in the Holocene. Now it's the geological epoch that followed in the wake of the great ice age, right? So when the ice sheets melted, you know, 11 to 13,000 years ago, melted away, it completely changed the, 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 the biosphere of the planet. Like, you know, we were talking about sea levels coming up, drowning those continental shelves, millions of square miles mm -hmm. of continental shelf that were exposed during the late glacial maximum with a lowered, a 400 foot lowered sea level, all that, all those ecosystems, they were drowned. So all of that was lost, right? So think about the, the, the change that would be involved if we were to somehow able to turn Antarctica, the South Pole, into a climate like North America. How would we do it? How would nature do it? Nobody has any idea, but that's what happened. I mean, you don't have uh, an ice sheet that's, you know, a mile to two miles thick covering seven million square miles of land without having a polar climate. And yet within a few thousand years, the ice sheets were gone. The polar climate had shifted to the modern temperate climate of, of Canada and the Northern United States today. How do you explain that? Nobody has an explanation for that at this point, but it was, it was orders of magnitude greater in severity than anything we've experienced in our lifetimes. So it's, it's all a matter of perspective, I guess is what I'm getting to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like there's many of these events that you, you are finding through your research and they're, they're happening all over the world. There, there are these impacts and some that don't leave these impacts at all. And so, you know, I think and mm. the awareness of, of this topic is the, the first step, but yes. also in mainstream science, th there seems to be this, this very widely held opposition to these ideas. It's as if they just don't want to accept reality. I mean, I don't know what it is, but it, it seems like you've been, you know, held back from pursuing this. I mean, many of the people that we've had on the show that address 
what some would call counterculture issues have you know been threatened with their tenure i mean there's there's many many mm. ways that they have been threatened from pursuing their research further just so that we can understand better who we are as a human species <clears throat> why why do you think there's so much pushback in the mainstream well i think there's a lot of politics are involved you know um money uh, money is a big part of it money power politics yeah i mean you know, the whole, I think I think of it as the global warming juggernaut. I mean, right from the outset, you got to understand that the mandate of the IPCC was to make the case that humans are mainly responsible for climate change. So in that case, you know, with that uh, mindset right from the outset, where well, we're not going to look at the sun. We're not going to look at changes in the geomagnetic field uh, that could be a big factor. We're not going to look at... Um, the amount of, of dust or in the atmosphere that is a consequence of volcanism or even the result of encounters with, you know, getting back to the meteor stream model, you know, the end result of this process of disintegration basically is cosmic dust. And, you know, Fred Hoyle and Chandra Wickramasen Singh did a lot of work on this back in the 70s and 80s showing what would happen in terms of global cooling uh, with the the uh, the accretion of cosmic dust, and nobody's ever really refuted it. Um, it's basically just been ignored. And what was happening, I think, is that you know we started sending up solar satellites and observing the sun, like within the last quarter century, twenty last twenty to thirty years, right? Until we had those satellites in place and really started making detailed studies of the sun. Nobody could say for sure that the sun was a major player in global climate change. Well, now, in tandem with the um, scenarios emerging about global warming, we're learning about the sun and that it's a much bigger player in global change than anybody had imagined. But it's still being basically ignored to this to this day. And so everything that's basically happening now, the attempt is to lay it at the feet of human activity hmm. and. You know, we hear about the Green New Deal and that we're going to have, um, you know, catastrophe, you know, in less than 12 years. Somebody came out recently saying, well, we only have 18 months. Well, I'm old enough to remember that we've had these predictions now going on for 30 years and they've never happened yet. And I think that the reason they haven't happened is because the science is flawed and you can't get a an accurate assessment of climate change or global change or environmental change. If you're ignoring the natural factors that we know have been operational on any time scale we can look at since the world began and they're not going to stop. They're not going to stop influencing the climate. They're not going to stop influencing the environment. They're going to keep right on. And here's my point is there's going to be global warming and global cooling. You could take every human on earth and we could go extinct and the climate is still going to change. It's sometimes there's going to be global warming where it's warmer than now, and other times it's going to be global cooling. And, and you know, since, since the turn of the 19th century, the estimate is that we've uh, global uh, average temperatures raise, raised by about one degree, right? About one degree. And it has because we were in, like I was saying before, the Little Ice Age was probably almost certainly the coldest three or four centuries of the entire 10, 12,000 years of the Holocene, right? Mm -hmm. During the Little Ice Age, glaciers worldwide grew to their greatest extent that they had been in 10,000 years. So the end of the Little Ice Age coincides exactly with the beginning of us 
uh, monitoring global temperature. So it, it, it's almost like saying, okay, well, we started monitoring the global temperature uh, in February, and now in June, it's warmer, way warmer than it was three months ago. Well, you have to look again at the context. See, well, of course, it's going to be warmer uh, on average if it's going to be May or June than it is in February or March. But that's natural. See, we're looking at such a small slice of time that it's not really accurate for us to extrapolate from looking at 100 years of climate data to know what's going on. So we have to resort to paleoclimatological data, the proxies that nature has provided for us to understand global change in the past. And when we do that and we have a context for understanding what's going on now, we realize that, oh, okay, so mm, it's not as extreme or freakish as I thought it was. You know, I mean, we're talking, you know, California has had droughts that have lasted for 20 years, 30 years. And this was long before the Industrial Revolution. And in, in, in every one of those, we could we could address in the same way. Um, so I think that, you know, big mistake to ignore the sun, big mistake to ignore the, the natural factors that we now know cause climate change. And this is not to say that humans are not. A, a factor because we are, and we certainly do need to get our act in order. But I'm more concerned with uh, particulate pollution, which is not carbon dioxide. I'm more concerned with plastics in the ocean, um, things that you can actually see and that we could address and do something about um, if the resources uh, and the incentive was there. Um, and I'm all for protecting endangered species, uh, which mostly is due to habitat loss rather than climate change. Hmm. Um, so, we, you know, we need to figure out ways to create safe havens for species um, and realize that, you know, habitat loss is the biggest contributing factor to the extinction of species. So if we can begin to um, set aside reserves, places where species can thrive. Um, but we also have to bear in mind that it's natural for species to go extinct. Hmm. Mm-hmm. They, they do that. Um, no matter what we do, some species are going to go extinct. And most of the uh, extinctions of the last 100 to 200 years that could be uh, have been island extinctions because island ecologies are, are they don't have the diversity um, that helps one, you know, the diversified system that, that contributes to survival. And most of the extinctions that have taken place on islands was the result of invasive species. And it was not, had nothing, really nothing to do with climate change. It had more to do with, with species that came in that displaced existing species. And those island uh, extinction events, they're pretty much historical now. I mean, they're done with. So we're not going to really run into that anymore. So the, the main concern would be habitat loss and Far, far more of a factor than than a, a half a degree or a one degree warming in average global temperature. But even there, see, what I'm getting at is that there are studies, and I have dozens and dozens of these studies in my collection, um, hmm. looking that the sun may have contributed half, uh, conservatively half of the warming of the last hundred years. Then, on the other hand, you've also got the urban heat island effect, and. This was another factor that's been ignored in the computer models, the, the, the fact that, you know, when we started most temperature data collection stations in the early or late 19, uh, early, late 1800s, early 1900s, 
were rural based. Most of them were at airports and those airports generally were rural. Well, in the ensuing development of, of a hundred, 120 years, um, those, uh, of course we didn't have airports till the 1920s and thirties, but even before that they were still mostly rural. And so the cities have grown, you know, the amount of, uh, asphalt and concrete and heat trapping materials, uh, has grown exponentially and there has not been adequate accounting for the amount of warming that would occur in the record based upon the urban heat island effect. And in fact, some, um, studies have suggested it could be a third to half of the, uh, one degree increase in average global temperature of the last hundred years could be blamed on the urban heat island effect. Um, because you know yourself, I mean, you can start looking at um, like weather reports and depending on a lot of factors, quite often you will see that the major urban areas are two, three, four degrees warmer than the surrounding rural areas. And that's because the concrete, the machinery, the asphalt, all of that is absorbing heat. And then that heat is re-radiated at night and that'll cause a, a, it'll contaminate the purity of the temperature data that you're looking at. See, mm-hmm. so they're, they're attempting to correct for that right now, but what it seems to be showing up is that maybe one third to one half of the warming increase of the last hundred years might be, it's real, but it's urban heat Island rather than carbon dioxide. So as soon as you get away from the urban areas and the masses of concrete, you know, in my building business, one of the things we do is we, we design structures to take advantage of the of the uh, thermal capacity of various materials such as concrete and stone. When we design a, a building or a house, um, we want to get solar gain uh, during the day when the sun is accessible and then at night when the sun is not there, the, the thermal energy that has been absorbed into the stone or the concrete or whatever – the thermal mass is now re-radiated into the space. Um, so it's it's the same concept. Hmm. Hmm. Wow, Randall. I mean, what an amazing interview. I mean, you are loaded with research, and it's clear that, you know, people such as yourself are trailblazing this path for others. And I mean, you've got quite the following. Many of your fans in the chat tonight talking about your work very enthusiastic about what you're doing and they they love you know absorbing all this information you've clearly done the research and the work and you know hopefully and there's it seems like there's a lot of work for us as humans to do to better understand the the cycles of our planet and you know maybe if we were lucky enough to have the support of the mainstream and science maybe that process would speed up but you know maybe we just need a close call for that to to happen a closer call you know you know yeah that i i've said the same thing for at least a decade now a close call or even i hate to say it in a, yeah. a strike you know a repeat of 1908 um i think would be a big wake up call um because I really do think that, you know, we're, we're spending so much time now, especially, you know, with confrontational geopolitics, um, you know, warfare, you know, preparation for war and and all the saber rattling that's going on. I, I look at all of that as being just basically contrived differences. And we're really mm-hmm. all on the same planet. Yep. We're all in the same boat. And really, the big issues affect all of us. And 
I think we're wasting a lot of time and effort and attention on these, you know, these made up conflicts when really, you know, what I'd like to see is uh, an international program to, you know, offload our industrial civilization from the planet, uh, which we could essentially do. The, the, the engineers have had plans on the on the drawing board since the 1970s. Um, you know, once you get outside the atmosphere, solar energy becomes really a viable way of powering systems, of powering factories. And we could see it happening. You know, a lot of the it's, – it's, it's really an encouraging thing to me that a lot of the uh, private billionaires from Elon Musk to Richard Branson and um, oh, um, Amazon Jeff Bezos, they're all very interested now in the, the, the private uh, exploration and economic development of the resources of space. And I'm all for that because I tend to think that human beings – our ultimate vindication is that we will become guardians of this planet. And we have, we have had 10,000 years now where we've been between major global catastrophes, right? But when we look back at the record of the last quarter million to half million years, what we see is over and over again, there have been these enormous extreme spasms within the natural order, any one of which could cause major uh, havoc with species, habitat loss, could pull the plug on, on modern civilization, could literally lead to a billion or more deaths. And basically what we're seeing within the context of the bigger picture is that we've had the longest period of generally stable climate that we can see in the last quarter million years. And it's given us the opportunity to evolve as a culture and a civilization, a technologically based civilization as we have. And so now we're in a position where we can, we have the technologies to, to understand the Cretaceous tertiary event, to understand the Younger Dryas events, to understand the Tunguska event and reconstruct it. A hundred years ago, we didn't see. Right. Now we have the technology to understand, yeah, the sun is a variable star. Sure. And sometimes it gets hyperactive. And when it does, the consequences to our civilization could be profound. See, so th it's, it's like we need to be taking all of this into account and realizing that, yeah, if there's a, even a small impact, it could be ecologically devastating to the biosphere. And we have the ability to prevent that. Now, does that put a moral um, mandate on us? I, I kind of think it does. And this is why I would oppose any effort to scale back our industrial civilization. I, I think we need to move forward. And by moving forward, you know, if we look since, you know, I'm old enough now to remember when, um, you know, living up in the Midwest, well, you can't swim in Lake Michigan because it's too polluted or, or, or Lake Huron, especially. Well, it's not now the fish are back. You know, we, we evolved culturally to where we could now, we, because we weren't preoccupied on a, the day to day business of survival, mm -hmm. we were able to now turn our attention to the larger environment and say, yeah, it's not good that Lake Huron is poisoned. It's not good that there's we're dumping this crap into the, the rivers. Let's fix that. And we have been fixing it. And we need to continue fixing it. But um, going back to the Stone Age is not going to be, or going back to a feudal system is not going to be the answer because basically at that point now 
We are vulnerable. Our civilization is vulnerable and the planet is invo- is vulnerable. And like you said, the next impact is inevitable. It's just a matter of when yeah. and the magnitude of it. Yeah. Randall, I mean, you, you said it here, man. It, it, it really does seem that, you know, technology, if, pe- if people just spent less time, you know, on their phones looking down at them and maybe yeah. started looking around at what was going on around them as well, that, that maybe we would, I mean, but there is something to be said for, you know, conversations like this and the ability to communicate with someone across the world. I mean, it's allowing us to, generate information collections of information that we would have never been able to to collect before at the rate at which we're doing it and it's it's virtually light speed so you know there's there's a lot happening there's a lot changing and it it's time that we grow up as a species it's time yes. that we start looking at this as a responsibility that we have well and said for you know for the sake of our children's children that, you know, we hand them a world that is habitable. And you know, I, I wonder about that sometimes, but Randall, I mean, this is, this has been such a f- amazing interview. I, you know, I, I, we've, we've gone over a bunch of different things. Is there anything that I could have asked you that you want to talk about that, that I haven't mentioned or brought up yet? Oh, Xavier, there's lots of things. Um, okay. Maybe, maybe one would be the, the legacy of, traditions that we've inherited from the past, from the people, our ancestors that have uh, have uh, lived and died and experienced things that we're talking about. There's a whole legacy of, of traditions, mythology and legends and folklore, symbolic systems that have been preserved in various venues uh, through oral traditions, through architecture, through sacred writings, that to me, to me is kind of like the other dimension of this is that we turn from, you know, the modern technological perspective and we see that we have this traditional perspective that can so powerfully complement and enhance the scientific worldview. Um, and, and that would be, again, a subject for a, for a whole other conversation. We could get into talking about the various myths, the stories of the great deluge, the stories of the the alternating destruction of the world by fire and water, the stories about, um, you know, some advanced civilization, whether it's Hyperborea or Atlantis or any of the number of names that that have uh, been given to it, Um, you know, the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. There are many of these themes that have come down to us. This is not to say, I'm not saying, oh, you know, if we go back, they were, you know, driving cars and flying airplanes and doing all of this kind of stuff. Because we could be talking about technological advancements here that wouldn't look anything at all like our modern industrially-based civilization. And and, and so I've done a considerable amount of research into what uh, uh, that kind of a a civilization could possibly look like. And, of course, in the aftermath of a global catastrophe uh, or or cataclysmic event, um, it would be very difficult to find – the hard evidence, um, you know, you could have an advanced civilization that is not producing plastics, right? Um, that's not building automobiles. Although, you know, if, if you take an automobile, put it out in, you know, in a field and sits there, you know, 200 years from now, you wouldn't find anything of that automobile, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to rust it away. Um, mm-hmm. so, you know, you, you could take, in fact, there's not much within, within 10,000 years, 
if, if we just walked away from our modern civilization and just left it to, to the vicissitudes of nature, what would we see in 10,000 years to tell us that we had existed and had built this amazing civilization with our great cities and airports and, you know, highway systems? What would remain? Nothing. Nothing you could see except a few isolated examples, such as the Great Pyramids of Egypt, possibly, probably Mount Rushmore, as long as there was no seismic shaking of that area that caused the collapse of the rock faces, you would still have Mount Rushmore there. But see, and that's without even a catastrophe intervening. You start throwing catastrophes into the mix, like I've been studying, and you realize how much geomorphic remodeling takes place during some of these. I mean, yeah, there are whole landscapes that are buried under thousands of miles of sediment. There are other... And that sediment was other landscapes that got stripped away and eroded by these intensely erosive events. See, people don't understand that, you know, we're talking about, for example, floods from 12 or 13,000, 14,000 years ago that were that are measured in hundreds of millions of cubic feet per second. Even some of those smaller floods are on a scale where you couldn't reproduce them today because they would require Every single river, creek, and stream on Earth, all flowing together times 10 or 20. So, I mean, this is the scale. I mean, we're talking about, um, you know, floods that would wash away any urban area that existed on Earth were they struck by such a flood. You, you know, you can't even imagine a, a flow of water that's 1,000 or 1,500 feet or even 2,000 feet deep moving at 50 or 60 or 70 miles an hour. In the aftermath of a flood like that, nothing is going to remain. Mm -hmm. And what I'm describing is not science fiction. It's real. It's well documented. And um, this is something, you know, that on the, the Geocosmic uh, Rex website, we've got a lot of videos and graphics. Cameron on the Sacred Geometry website has quite a bit of that stuff to show that, yeah, these outsized events have been a part of Earth history, and we need to understand why, and we need to you know, address that to, you know, with the question of could such a thing happen again? Now, as far as those particular floods, it's not likely that it would happen again because those floods were generated by the rapid catastrophic melting of the great ice sheets. But how you would have gigantic floods like that is a small asteroid falling into one of the world's oceans, producing a tsunami that makes landfall and it's two or 300 feet high or higher. Mm -hmm. Wow. Randall, thank you so much. Why don't you give us, uh, you know, where where people can find your work, the website? Uh, are you doing any conferences? Uh, where can people find your work in any conferences that you might? Yeah, there, there's a couple of things coming up, and I don't have this dates or time. But this fall, I've got several things that I'm going to be doing. One in Minnesota, and one in in Arkansas at Little Rock. Um, I may be doing some more tours. I did a tour. Uh, I led a tour. I took about 75 people uh, out into the field for over 10 days in Colorado in May. And we mostly were exploring geological features and archaeological features. So we were looking at the um, the lost Chacoan culture of northern New Mexico and southern uh, Colorado. I might be doing a field trip this fall. We'll just have to see how the time works out. I What happens is, you know, I've been doing a lot of writing and I've been working for, what, three or four years now on a book. And it's just trying to get this book finished. Um, 
but I keep doing too many things. I keep going places and, you know, doing podcasts and things instead of finishing my book. So, uh, <laughs> well, okay. So guys, we're going to get out of here. We went super late. We were late to arrive. So we, we, we let it go a little bit longer so you guys could hear it. That's going to do it for us. Thank you so much for listening. If you're listening to this on the YouTube version, please click the subscribe button. Make sure you click the bell so you get notified when we go live. If you're listening to this on the podcast version, get over to YouTube and search for the Human Experience Podcast. You can find out when we go live there if you're interested in finding our live shows. One other thing you can do if you're listening to us on in the podcast version is you can just spread the word of of the show. One of the most common things that I'm hearing, common themes that I'm hearing from people is that we've interviewed these amazing guests, amazing authors, amazing researchers, but people haven't found our work yet. So if you can get on iTunes and leave us a review, that would help us a lot. It's probably the biggest compliment that you can give us is a review on iTunes. So thank you so much for listening. My guest, Randall Carlson tonight, what a pleasure and we're going to get out of here. We'll see you guys next week. Two seconds, Randall.